Hello, I'm Wilson Casado, husband, father, business owner, angel investor, entrepreneur. And above all, I'm passionate about innovation, education and diversity. I believe that we need diversity for a more innovative future. Welcome to Changing the Game. Join me as I explore the need for diversity and education for a future we can all get excited about. I'll be diving deep into conversations that will give meaning and real-life examples of why diversity is good business for all of us and why we need to start now. I'll be joined by a host of amazing people who have first-hand experience of this in action and will inspire you to do the same. We'll be looking at innovations that solve real-world challenges and investigating those that create new problems instead of solving them so we can learn from the good and the bad. This show is for anyone who wants to change the game. Okay, hello everyone. Wilson Casado here with one more episode of Changing the Game. Today I have a very special guest, Charlie Caruso. So I'll do something different today. So uh, Charlie's uh, bio is, uh, is way too interesting for me to be reading. So I'm going to ask the normal question. And, and go from there. So well, welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you for having me. So let, let me start with this. So Charlie, uh, as I mentioned before, so I normally ask people, or I normally read the bar, not going to yeah. read the bar, I'm going to ask you to tell your story to us. Okay, I will try to be succinct because it doesn't follow any normal patterns of, I guess, what a, a, a sort of a standard career is. And I've always had this issue of, you know, my poor children, when they ask, what does your mum do? They always really struggle because it's it's forever changing. Um, but I guess the where I'm at now is we're just about to launch my uh, general partners and I, Quokka Capital, which is a early stage investment fund that is going to be an ESB CLP. And I say going to be because it's a it's anyone that doesn't know or does know about the ESV CLP structure, which offers incredible opportunities for investors. Um, it's also a very long process and we're a year into it and we are um, very, very close to being able to make the submission. So 2023 is we're hoping to be the year that we're actually um, writing the checks. And it's been a long time coming. But my how I got here story um, is fraught with you know I'm a published author I um started my startup journey um actually doing podcasts believe it or not before podcasts there was such a thing as podcasts and apps I, I did an online radio station was my first startup many years ago um I've consulted I've consulted to help um founders raise capital so I've been both sides of that market um, I have worked in blockchain. I have worked for NGOs. I've done a million things that anyone probably could look on my bio on LinkedIn. Um, but I guess the, the central tenet is my obsession with solving problems, um, you know, from a, a variety of different angles. Um, and my, I've always been drawn to disruption and technology, which is sort of investing in a early stage, um, Ventures sort of suits me really nicely. It's it's been the right um, landing, I guess. Very nice. So uh, we we here. I'll, I'll I'll take this an advantage. So I'm hearing that you have this very diverse career or, or or different career, let's say. So I hear when you say that sometimes uh, 
some some people ask you what you do and it's kind of hard to define it's ever-changing sort of thing so yeah have a good empathy with that so some sort of uh thing that i have been struggling myself with so if, if we go a little bit uh earlier then so do you remember when you still say a, a young woman and you know trying to figure out what you're going to do? So did you ever have you ever known what what were you going to do? It's a really good question. Um, no, I sort of was lucky enough when I went to school to find school pretty easy. Like I was one of those students that did performed relatively well. I, I've heard incredible passion for learning. I'm a total nerd. Um, you know, I'm constantly reading. I, I prefer to read and learn other than watching TV. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I've always been that way. And so I had the opportunity um, and was told, uh, even though I wanted to write, I've always been sort of a, a storyteller, I guess, at heart. Like I'm good at being able to understand complicated things and then sort of retell it in in more simple um manner I guess uh, but I was told at school with my grades I should be aspire to be much more than a writer and I should be a doctor and then um and then I got sick I got a um a medical condition smack bang in the middle of my TE in last final year and that sort of sh forced a shift which I'm actually retrospectively forever grateful for um I don't think I would have made a particularly good doctor um I I think the um I've always been drawn to problem solving, I guess, and using um, logic and constantly asking questions. I was that kid that was really frustrating. Um, and so I think, yeah, I've, everything's gone the right way, but there's never been a real plan. I remember writing my first legal contract. I didn't know it was that when I was nine. My sister had got a lock for my, her room, so I had stopped stealing her clothes. And I wrote this, like, I guess it was, I was trying to convince her that I should be able to to borrow her clothes, but I put these set of rules that ended up being like five pages long. And my mum told me then I should be a lawyer. And the irony is I actually just finishing up my um, international law master's and I have fallen in love with law, but not in the way that I thought it was like this, you know, doing litigation or anything. I love the law as in looking at policy problem solving with the law. And so that, yes, the long answer is no, but I always knew that I had some Something magical, I guess, it sounds a bit silly, happens when I start writing. It's something that comes really naturally to me. And I can see it actually in my daughter when she draws. Like I don't have that talent. I cannot draw and it looks like the thing that I had in my head, but I can write in that way. Something happens when I start communicating. And so that has been something that I've built on and coupled with my pursuit of learning and problem solving and and the tenacity that takes to just continually drive at something irrespective of what people say no and you can't that for me is fuel and I can see that as a consistent thing with a lot of people that are in this space they, they feel the same we're almost a bit of a tribe in that way very nice so uh oh I should I should I should show you this sentence that I use in my life that you know it's quite significant. So I'm looking here because I can I can read it. So it talks about the greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you cannot do. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. See, same tribe, same same thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell me, and, and then you somehow you ended up being a founder. You mentioned about. Uh, podcast when podcast didn't exist. 
So some, you know, not, not very frequently we're talking about, you know, we're doing startups and exits when you didn't use that sort of terminology, like a startup mm. or exit sort of, it didn't exist as part of the terminology. But I'm more interested in your, so you decided to uh, to venture to, to be an entrepreneur. So how, yeah. how was that journey? Well, it was accidental, as most people will say. Um, it was to solve a problem, which is usually the cause. It's the catalyst for, for most. Um, it's always the catalyst. Uh, for me, it was I it was stuck in the traffic um, because I turned the radio off. I was so just I had my two little kids. They were really little um, in the back, and I was taking them just to daycare. I think and. Um, I was listening to this radio that was just talking nonsense and then Rihanna S&M, which is lyrics that I would never want my children to sing along to, was on. And so I'm just constantly flicking. I got so tired of, of the the nonsense that was being spoken about that I just turned it off. And then I went straight into a traffic jam that I would have known had I listened to the radio. And I thought there has to be something better here. There has to be surely, instead of talk back radio talking, I think what I caught was they were talking about a cricketer's wife who had just lost a baby weight and I was just so furiated by is that the best we've got like there are so many things that as a parent that I want to know about and that is not one of those can we not do better can we not have guests that are talking about you know this is also pre-podcast right so this is not everything was radio online radio hadn't developed iPhones had only just come into an existence and I was thinking surely we can do a radio station that was for parents. It's not even like that's a niche market. You could get advertisers. I could just see this business model and I was thinking there's no way that this doesn't exist. There's no way. And so when I finally did end up getting to work, I Googled it and I was really shocked that that had not really manifested in the way that I sort of conceived of it. And so I embarked on um, trying to get a radio station license and that took me to the ombudsman and a whole other, that's a whole other story. But it landed in me doing an online radio station and podcast before podcasts existed and it taught me so much. Um, it was the best failure, if you, I mean, I don't really believe in failures, but it was the best commercial failure um, in the sense that I was too early. It was like the technology timing was really off. Um, it taught me that the commercial model wasn't right because I was forced to make so many compromises. I, I was it then compromised the commercial model and it just wasn't right. And it and it taught me everything and it that ability to push, you need to to be a successful founder. You have to have enough grit and determination to to look at every angle to make it work but the internal fortitude to walk away when it just isn't going to work. And I think for me as an investor, but but as a founder, that is, I mean, every founder is the earliest stage investor. So that for me, they're one and the same, but that lesson is the secret. It's that those that are successful come out of that stronger and wiser. And those that are completely defeated by that decision, we're just never going to be able to make it as a founder because that is it. It's the ability to walk away if you've tried everything um, that makes you, you know, successful in the, in this game. That's very interesting because uh, if we normally don't talk about that, the fact that we, we talk a lot about the fact that sometimes as investors we we value the fact that some founders had a previous experience, sometimes a not so good previous experience, and and we value uh, what they learn with it, the journey. Uh, but it, but it's interesting thing that you make me think is is that uh, 
sometimes we also talk about the the grit and the perseverance and you know in fact that you have to keep trying because things will go you know wrong and you have to pivot and and between these things about keep trying pivoting and really recognizing where you know that's it that <laughs> we try everything uh yeah I'm, I'm just wondering uh what makes that flip what made it very very interesting it it was it was it was the biggest learning curve of my entire life I've got to say like it set me up for everything that I've done since um I think that's probably true of everyone's experience or major experiences like that that but the the crash course that was my first one and it it almost ticked every of those like most common mistakes that are made boxes like I um, it was the timing. It was so many things. I pivoted to make it a, like a social enterprise before that was really catalyzed before. Again, everything was just too early. Yeah. Um, ultimately was forced to re- continually revisit the, the commercial model, just trying to make it work. But sometimes it just doesn't. And you've got to be able to objectively look at that and be able to make a calculated decision that you know, I, it's it's flogging a dead horse. Like I've got to walk, I've got to cut, draw the line here. I've tried everything. This is not failure. This is just part of the journey. And I've now got to sort of say I can continue to believe these assets or I can stop and I can make a calculated decision to, to sever it and I can then repurpose these assets or whatever into something else. And it's, you know, it's obviously it's not what you ever envision or want to be that, but but it's such an important ability to be prepared to do it. Um, or at least have the fortitude and the courage to have that as a possibility. You never want to give up too early, but I think you, you even as an investor now, it, a very, as someone I hold in very high regard, called it the seeing Jesus moment. Yeah. And, um, and I agree. It's, it's when I'm looking at founding teams um, and founders, that's one of the key things. It's like, have they got that emotional maturity they've disconnected themselves enough to be able to look objectively at this from an investor perspective and have they catalyzed, I guess, their role as an investor as opposed to just a founder. And until they get to that moment, that's risky to invest in that, like pre, pre pre-moment. Really what you need is, or where I like to see is them having that moment previously and then building on them once they've had that that right framing. And it's torturous. But for those that are that solving problems isn't an option, um, it's just part of the process of developing into whatever career you end up in. Very, very interesting. So oh look, uh before I'm gonna ask you about then what you know what led you to the to be an investor, right? So to actually to run a fund, but before that. So I noticed in your profile, the beginning of your career, you had some corporate experiences. So yeah. uh, and and you went overseas and 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 so on. So can you can you give us a flavor of how those corporate experience gave you uh, you know experience for what you're doing now? Uh, to be really honest, and I think a lot of founders will um, recognize this that that was a side hustle to get me to to be able to pay for the things that I wanted to do. Um, so when, you know, in corporate world is not for me, um, it is something that pays well, but it doesn't in any way serve 
to satisfy the hunger I have to solve um, problems because you just don't have the autonomy to make the decisions that that I feel like I that I'm the most happiest when I'm in that position. And so um, I've sort of worked in um, using the skill set of of being able to st- tell stories and um, do reporting. And, you know, my undergrad was international business and Chinese business. And then I've gone on to do a master's of international relations and international law. So I've kept the international thing going. Um, but it's all, you know, it's shaped, it's, it's ability to make money relatively easily to pay the bills to do the things that I wanted to do. And so that's the best way that I can describe my corporate consulting. Um, that's that I have done consulting as well. Um, to help founders raise their first capital because what I was seeing, uh, so for years, one of the things that probably isn't on my LinkedIn profile, but for years I acted as a pseudo family office um, for my um, family and because they would just, you know, anyone that even in mining, if you've done a reasonable job, people know to throw um, pitches at you ceaselessly. And so I, anything that wasn't mining related would come to me and I would do an assessment on whether I'd, whether we should invest in it or not. And I just kept seeing the same pattern of mistakes, like the same rookie errors founders were making over invested emotionally in there, not willing to take critique, um, just not able to tell the story properly or not thinking about it from an investor perspective, just completely not covering certain elements that you would need to make a decision. And so I started consulting for a number of years just to help founders like understand how to pitch, how how to present their story appropriately, because there was a lot of really good ideas that were just not being invested because of it. And so I did, that was more rewarding and satisfying work, albeit, you know, I, some, um, (laughs) <laughs> corporate Sydney, um, corporate people from Sydney would call me that I was saving the penguins because it's to do that kind of work, you're not charging a huge amount, right? Like you just can't. These are people that are there and I sympathize with their passion and whatever. So you're not making, I can't, they can't cut the same checks you can get corporately, but it was the kind of soul work that, that I lived for. And I just, and I did a lot of learning and understanding of really that the, the more systemic problems that we have. I was like, how is it that this this mistake is not being learned? No one's teaching these people these this but like you can go to I, I know I was at um at business school at the time. It's like that the, the actual skills that you need to know are not being taught somewhere. And some somewhere someone's gonna have to figure out how we're gonna do that better. I think we've come a long way and yet I still see those mistakes. So it's uh it's it was a really rewarding process and, and experience to have. It's definitely shaped me far more than the, the corporate consulting did. So there's uh, you so much on that. So uh, one thing that's that you made me remind was that uh, after I had, you know, after our first company, so I got a corporate job and I ended up talking with an executive. And when he learned that I had that experience of having a company, have an exit and now doing a corporate job, he said that I was, uh, you know, as, as fully myself. Because after having that experience, you're never going to adapt to a corporate job ever in your life again. And it was funny because at that point in time, I actually chased him. So he said, no, nah, you're wrong. So you can now prove you're wrong. So I'll, I'll do this corporate job well and then you'll see. Well, you know, the fact that I did the corporate job well or not is, is relevant. The fact that I was drowning there mm-hmm. <laughs> and wasn't too many, you know, too long after that, that I was back to, yeah. um, you know, as a, a entrepreneurial adventure sort of initiative. 
So it's really driven by that sort of passion that you talk about, you know, the ability to to help more. And Soul work. The impact, I guess. Yeah. So you gave, you gave, you know, you gave a lead to me then what you just said, you talk about, uh, before you talk about how a, your daily life uh, problem has led you to open your first company. And now you, you, you mentioned about, you know, the, the, that sort of conflict between having a nice check in the end of the month as opposed to, uh, you know, following something that you're more passionate about, but not necessarily the money will be there at least for a while. So uh, we're both in WA, we're both in Perth, and and I know from your story so uh, that we're both passionate to, to see something happening here locally and then I see that ecosystem growing here locally. So one thing, though, is that, Given uh, the privilege that you know, we're grateful for living in this part of the planet, so many founders found that that you know that the the choices are between going for a crazy life as an entrepreneur, and you know probably not going to make money for a while, and you know having to work hard and etc. In contrast to relatively easy, have a six figure sort of, uh, you know, mining job and, you know, have that sort of uh, certainty in your life. So my question for you is, being in this environment, do you think that that sort of choice is available that prevent so more founders to come up? It prevents, you know, that sort of uh, entrepreneurial activity to be uh, to be bigger in here locally? I mean, that's... That's why we're doing the fund. And the short answer is it should be easier. There should be more capital available uh, that gets this, that gets it from a founder's perspective that's willing to sort of roll the sleeves up and help um, the black and white, you work for corporate or you don't, isn't how it should be. It's not the right decision. It's for me, that's a decision of like you're compromising or trading in happiness. If you're that way in it, inclined you know you're you're fed by resistance or what people say you can't do you you're never in my view going to be satisfied in a corporate nine to five no matter as you said no matter how successful or good you are at that role is it going to make you fulfilled and satisfied and there are certain people that that does and that feeds them internally and then there's others like myself and, and yourself that they doesn't and what we you know Nigel Hamish and myself really recognize was that there it should be easier than it currently is in Perth. And what we were seeing consistently is a lot of people feeling like they had to leave this city in order to raise the capital. And I think that that, that is true. And if they were lucky enough to, you know, knock on the right door, there was no, I guess it was, it still is opaque. Like the early stage capital landscape in this city is opaque. It's not transparent. It's not very clear um, who to go to, under what circumstances, for what kind of check. Um, it's always been really tricky and there was this whole mantra of you got a list and, and we know what largely happens to early stage tech companies when they list. It's bad advice. It's not suitable for them. We know the most successful technology companies stay private for as long as possible. And, um, and so it just hasn't been easier. And I think that there is a huge amount of um, 
that's, I don't want to say innovation wasteland, but it kind of is, of ideas that were brilliant and founded teams that were incredible that because of the lack of access to capital or early stage capital or advice here, who weren't able to leave, um, those businesses didn't happen. And I think that that's a travesty. And so that's what, that's the why for us. It's not to call ourselves fund managers or, you know, it's not chasing, I mean, obviously for us to be successful and for that vision to be really um, realised financially, we have to make the right decisions, we have to back the right horses and we have to be successful, but that's not the driver. Um, the driver is solving this deeper problem in Perth of this lost opportunity and that there should be more options available to founders here. Absolutely. That's a class. That's very good. So uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, Quaker Capital. What What is it? <laughs> so it will be in 2023 um, a early stage venture capital limited partnership, which is often just called a ESVCLP, um, which is an incredible um, structure that the federal government, I think it was in 2015, came up with to try to encourage or create a carrot uh, to to incentivize um, investors to to invest in early as opposed to later on when the risks are less. Um, and so it provides enormous amount of tax incentivizations for those that write it, cut a check. Um, basically, the tax three threshold on gain allows any individual investment that is made in that fund up to 250, I think, 250 million per investment tax free for those gains. So it's incredible. And a lot of people in Perth don't even know that it exists. It's because there hasn't been a Perth-based ESV CLP before. Um when we so we started the, the process with actually Charlie Gunningham, which most people in this space uh, know very well, he um brought quite a number of us together uh like I want to say two years ago it was a, it was a reasonable time and I met Nigel Lee there um and I'd never met him before he just come fresh in from the US and he sort of was thinking and seeing and and he was the only one that sort of he and I really aligned with around how we solve this problem and we were hungry and so many people had told us it could never be done and that fueled both of us, which I think was the right fit, um, to say, no, actually, we we can do this. That There's so much money here in WA. Uh, what we've got to do is just really be willing to do the hard work to, and be the founders in many ways, and we have, um, to, to get this off the ground. And so we did, we sort of, got ourselves to a point when we weren't an ESVCLP and then we raised um considerable amount like it wasn't official but like had you know soft yeses or, or reasonable yeses um and then we we realized we'd hit sort of a, a a glass ceiling almost at 10 mil we realized that in order to get the 25 30 which is where we were aiming we needed a big bigger fish we needed a bigger name to sort of get us to that next stage and um, and that led us down the path of the ESVCLP, which we are a year into. Um, and we had all the, you know, had lots of people telling us it could take two years. Um, but yeah, we're, we're right at the point of submission. So that's, it's a, um, an exhausting process and I can see why not a lot of people do it, but my hope, our hope and vision is that it will be well worth it because it offers an opportunity for investors to have an incredible upside, um, especially in the current financial circumstances. Um, 
and they get to have tax free, like tax deductions, 10% of whatever they put in, which there's so many benefits for investors. Yeah. Um, but equally, I mean, the goal, right, is to really back some incredible founder teams. And we've got that pipeline. We, we understand the kind of people that we want to work with and the kind of people we want to invest in. We're hoping it aligns nicely. But just this process of getting it together, speaking with investors, speaking with um, founding teams, you know, it's the right time. Perth is ready for this. Perth needed this. Um, and we're working with VCs over in the East as well who weren't really prepared to set up shop permanently here in WA who want to partner and help, you know, access WA talent with with having, you know, us being there, developing those one-on-one relationships. So I think it's time. I'm, I'm excited that we're so close. I'm, I'm happy for you. So I absolutely agree with that this time. So we, uh, same as you guys, so, you know, have seen the, in the last 10 years what's happening in the innovation ecosystem here in WA. And and if you take the picture 10 years ago, take the picture now. So it's completely different in terms of uh, maturity, in terms of the stakeholders that are involved. So, but it's still the beginning of the journey. So it's very good to have people like you guys uh, trying to do that. That's awesome. So uh, Yeah, it- <laughs> it, yeah. it does put you very much as a founder, right? Like we we are getting this, we're going through that exact same experience. The can't do it, it's too hard, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Absolutely. But it's fuel. It's fuel for us. Yeah. So, uh, Charlie, have you, uh, what about the investments you have made? So do you, would you have any story for us of any founder? <laughs> I've but, Every time that I ask for, you know, what was your preferred founder, preferred investment, nobody going to yeah. answer that question because I can have a preferred one. But what is this story you think uh, you could share with us? That would be good. So, I I mean, I was my first investment and I remain my first investment. So I think, and that process that I sort of touched on earlier around like realizing that 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 disconnect, but yet same sort of fostering is really critical. So like my investments that have worked really well or that have been commercially successful, let's say, I I can tell you that that founder and I call each other friends. Like we're genuinely, they can pick up the phone and either of us, even though I technically was the investor, we are, we've got each other's back all the time because it was, I guess it's a deeper recognition of the fact that when you come in as an early stage investor, you are almost co-parenting, right? And that respect was established. And and my advice in those dynamics that have worked have always been really recognized and, and appreciated. And it's not because we're friends because they were successful. They were successful because they had the appropriate relationship with their early stage investors. That that is exactly the same, but in reverse for the investments that haven't been successful. It's not because I've fallen out of, you know, I'm, I'm no longer in really in contact with them because the investment's gone poorly. The investment's gone poorly because there wasn't that real respect and and close collaboration with the early stage investors. And I think that's really critical because you know, I spent a lot of time trying to explain this dynamic. I think it's possibly the most important dynamic and. The expression, you know, you back the jockey, not the horse. It's such a cliche, but it's so true. Um, the best analogy I can give is is that a, a startup or event, early stage venture is like a child in that you know you're the first investor 
but you also have to accept that success means that your role will, will diminish over time. And so that your role becomes choosing the, the right co-parents or the right educators or the right people that are going to take on the gaps that you will inevitably leave. But the acceptance that your you, your role will diminish and the, and the knowledge and the comfort in that. The businesses that I see as, as a personal investor that I've invested in or that I you know have looked into investor or know of in the periphery, the ones that go wrong are the ones that don't quite get that. The founders that just can't disconnect their own ego, their own self-worth from this venture and and respect and and sort of have the courtesy of those early co-parents, the early other next investors, and embrace the critiques or the advice or the support. If that dynamic isn't right earliest, I've yet to see a company that succeeds at that point. So for me, that's been a huge lesson is the yeah, the founding teams and the founders that get that we're really close, irrespective of where that commercial outcomes are. And I will back those individuals forever, irrespective of the um the, the particular returns necessarily, because that trust and relationship is is unshakable. Um and that for me is critical and I know it's critical for 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 Nigel and for Quaker is that we're really looking at the kind of teams that get that, that really understand that we're we both have to be in it together. And so if we're not the first people that you call to problem solve, then we failed somewhere in, in getting this dynamic right because we are here to help. And if you don't have early stage investors willing to do that and you're not willing to listen to them, I, I'm i yet to see success in that dynamic. That's very good. So I, I, my bias is too strong here to be able to, uh, to, to make myself neutral but uh yes the correlation is very strong when we talk about advisory investment we talk about mentoring coaching so that sort of the establishment of that human connection and and uh, you know the uh the leveling of roles so you know nobody's more important than the others is about yeah. what we learn together in the journey uh that that's so relevant and the correlation with the things that go well and things that don't are very strong. So I think it has connection as well with something you mentioned before. It's really about doing what, you know, being happy and doing what you love. And and if you don't want to do that with, you know, those relationships that don't that don't have that sort of connection. So thank you for that. So I think I I I, I did uh before we did this interview, so you mentioned about the fact that we could talk forever and and <laughs> and the guys, I think we, we are we are serious offenders on that. So believe or not, we are you know beyond the thirty minutes. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll wrap this up. But it's easy. We were just warming up, isn't it? There's yeah, a- <laughs> I warned you. I I have a um, <laughs> terrible tendency <laughs> to just. Well, I think it's because we're talking from passion, right? And Absolutely. these things matter. From um, your latest answer, so we could go in another hour easy. Yeah. So maybe maybe we transform this in a in a series. Uh, <laughs> Charlie, um, I, w- I will I will stop there. I will stop here. So because yes, so if we continue, we don't stop. Uh, yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, so 
it just feel like we're warming up. So I'd love, and I'm sure uh, the audience, people that are listening to uh, to this podcast, will will love it. Will be intrigued. Will be wanting more. So <laughs> that's a little bit of what we want. That kind of you know poke that curiosity, that intellectual curiosity, so people you know want to learn more and etc. So I'm pretty sure uh, there will be other opportunities for us to chat more and share more of these. So I'm extremely grateful. Thank you very much for for the chat. No, it's been a pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime um, and keep up the extraordinary work. It, what you're doing is is really important, and I'm hoping that people, anyone listening, um, yeah, that it that it provides some sort of validation of wherever you're at. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, everyone that's listening to us. This is uh, the Changing the Game, our show with the the final episode for 2022. So we have a new year coming along. So I hope you enjoy your year. I wish you a very best new year. And, yeah, I'll see you all in the next episode of Changing the Game. Thank you.